Chapter Seventeen of Seven Keys to Baldpate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Seven Keys to Baldpate by Earl Dare Biggers. Chapter Seventeen The Professor Sums Up. In Upper Esquian Falls, the clock on the old tower hall struck nine. Mr. McGee, on guard in Baldpate's dreary office, counted the strokes. She must be halfway down the mountain now. Perhaps at this very moment she heard Quimby's ancient gate creaking in the wind. He could almost see her as she tramped along through the snow, the lovely heroine of the most romantic walk of all romantic walks on Baldpate to date. Halfway to the waiting room where she had wept so bitterly. Halfway to the curious station agent with the mop of ginger hair. Tonight there would be no need of a troubadour to implore, Weep no more, my lady. William Hallowell McGee had removed the cause for tears. It was a long vigil he had begun, but there was no boredom in it for Billy McGee. He was too great a lover of contrast for that. As he looked around on the ill-assorted group he guarded, he compared them with the happier people of the inn's summer nights about whom the girl had told him. Instead of these surly or sad folk sitting glumly under the pistol of romantic youth, he saw maids garbed in the magic of muslin flit through the shadows. Lights glowed softly. A waltz came up from the casino on the breath of the summer breeze. Under the red and white awnings, youth and joy and love had their day or their night. The hermit was on hand with his postcarded romance. The trees gossiped in whispers on the mountain. And, too, the rocking-chair fleet gossiped in whispers on the veranda, pausing only when the admiral sailed by in his glory. Eagerly it ran down its game. This girl, this Myra Thornhill, he remembered, had herself been a victim. After Kendrick disappeared she had come there no more, for there were ugly rumors of the man who had fled. Mr. McGee saw the girl and her long-absent lover whispering together in the firelight. He wondered if they, too, imagined themselves at Baldpate in the summer, if they heard the waltz in the casino and the laughter of men in the grill-room. Ten o'clock, said the town hall pompously. She was at the station now. In the room of her tears she was waiting, perhaps her only companion the Jackie of the See the World poster, whose garb was but a shade bluer than her eyes. Who was she? What was the bribe money of the suburban railway to her? Mr. McGee did not know, but he trusted her, and he was glad she had won through him. He saw Professor Bolton walk through the flickering half-light to join Myra Thornhill and Kendrick. It must be half-past by now. Yes, from far below in the valley came the whistle of a train. Now... She was boarding it, she and the money. Boarding it. For where? For what purpose? Again the train whistled. The siege, remarked Mr. McGee, is more than half over, ladies and gentlemen. The professor of comparative literature approached him and took a chair at his side. I want to talk to you, Mr. McGee, he said. A welcome diversion, assented McGee, his eyes still on the room. I have discussed matters with Miss Thornhill, said the professor in a low voice. She has convinced me that in this affair you have acted from a wholly disinterested point of view. 
a mistaken idea of chivalry perhaps the infatuation of the moment for a pretty face a thing to which all men with red blood in their veins are susceptible a pleasant thing that i would be the last to want banished from the world miss thornhill replied billy mcgee has sized up the situation perfectly except for one rather important detail it is not the infatuation of the moment professor say rather that of a lifetime ah yes the old man returned youth how sure it always is of that i do not deprecate the feeling once long ago i too had youth and faith we will not dwell on that however miss thornhill assures me that henry bentley the son of my friend john bentley esteems you highly she asserts that you are in every respect as far as her knowledge goes an admirable young man i feel sure that after calm contemplation you will see that what you have done is very unfortunate the package of money which in a giddy moment you have given into a young lady's keeping is much desired by authorities as evidence against a very corrupt political ring i am certain that when you know all the details you will be glad to return with me to Rutten and do all in your power to help us regain possession of that package. And now the town hall informed Mr. McGee that the hour was eleven. He pictured a train flying like a black shadow through the white night. Was she on it? Safe? Professor Bolton, he said, there couldn't possibly be anyone anywhere more eager than I to learn all the details of this affair to hear your real reason for coming to Baldpate Inn, and to have the peroxide blonde incident properly classified and given its niche in history. But let me tell you again, my action of tonight was no mere madness of the moment. I shall stick through it thick and thin. Now, about the blondes. The blondes, repeated the professor dreamily. Ah, yes. I must make a small confession of guilt there. I did not come here to escape the results of that indiscreet remark, but I really made it about a year ago. Shall I ever forget? Hardly. The newspapers and my wife won't let me. I can never again win a new honor, however dignified, without being referred to in print as the peroxide blonde advocate. The thing has made me furious. However, I did not come to Baldpate Inn to avoid the results of a lying newspaper story though many a time a year ago when I started to leave my house and saw the reporters camped on my doorstep, I longed for the seclusion of some such spot as this. On the night when Mr. Kendrick and I climbed Baldpate Mountain, I remarked as much to him. And so it occurred to me that if I found any need of explaining my presence here, the blonde incident would do very well. It was only a white lie. A blonde one, corrected Mr. McGee. I forgive you, Professor and I'm mightily glad the incident really happened, despite the pain it caused you. For it, in a way, condones my own offense, and it makes you human, too. If to err is human, it does, agreed Professor Bolton. To begin with, I am a member of the faculty of the University of Rutten, situated, as you no doubt know, in the city of the same name. For a long time I have taken a quiet interest in our municipal politics. I have been up in arms, linguistic arms, against this odd character Cargan, who came from the slums to rule us with a rod of iron. Everyone knows he is corrupt, that he is wealthy through the sale of privilege, that there is actually a fixed schedule of prices for favors in the way of city ordinances. I have often denounced him to my friends. Since I have met him, well, 
It is remarkable, is it not, the effect of personality on one's opinions? I expected to face a devil, with the usual appurtenances. Instead, I have found a human, rather likable man. I can well understand now why it is that the mob follows him like sheep. However, that is neither here nor there. He is a crook and must be punished, even though I do like him immensely. Mr. McGee smiled over to where the great bulk of Cargan slouched in a chair. He's a bully old scout, he remarked. Even so, replied the professor, his high-handed career of graft and rudin must come to a speedy close. He is of a type fast vanishing through the awakening public conscience. And his career will end, I assure you, despite the fact that you, Mr. McGee, have seen fit to send our evidence scurrying through the night in the behest of a chit of a girl. I beg your pardon. I, I shall continue. Young Drayton, the new county prosecutor, was several years back a favorite pupil of mine. After he left law school, he fell under the spell of the picturesque mayor of Rutten. Cargan liked him, and he rose rapidly. Drayton had no thought of ever turning against his benefactor when he accepted the first favors, but later the open selling of men's souls began to disgust him. When Cargan offered him the place of prosecutor a few months ago, Drayton assured him he would keep his oath of office. The mayor laughed. Drayton insisted. Cargan had not yet met the man he could not handle. He gave Drayton the place. The old man leaned forward and tapped McGee on the knee. It was in me, remember, he went on, that Drayton confided his resolve to serve the public. I was delighted at the news. A few weeks ago, he informed me his first opportunity was at hand. Through one of the men in his office, he had learned that Hayden, of the suburban electric, was seeking to consolidate that road, which had fallen into partial disrepute under his management during the illness of Thornhill, the president, with the civic. The consolidation would raise the value of the suburban nearly two million dollars, at the public's expense. Hayden had seen Cargan. Cargan had drafted Ordinance Number 45, and informed Hayden that his price for passing it through the council would be the sum you have juggled in your possession on Baldpate Mountain, $200,000. A marriage rifle, remarked McGee sarcastically. So Cargan made Hayden see. Through long experience in these manners, the mayor has become careless. He is a thing above the law, if not the law himself. He would have had no fear in accepting this money on Main Street at midday. He had no fear when he came here and found he was being spied on. But Hayden, there was the difficulty that began the drama of Baldpate Inn. Hayden had few scruples, but as events tonight have well proved, Mr. McGee, he was a coward at heart. I do not know just why he lies on your bed upstairs at this moment, a suicide. That is a matter between Kendrick and him, and one which Kendrick himself has not yet fathomed. As I say, Hayden was afraid of being caught. Andy Rudder, manager of Baldpate Inn for the last few summers, is in some way mixed up with a suburban. It was he who suggested to Hayden that an absolutely secluded spot for passing this large sum of money would be the inn. The idea appealed to Hayden. Cargan tried to laugh him out of it. The mayor did not relish the thought of a visit to Baldpate Mountain in the dead of winter, especially as he considered such precautions unnecessary. But Hayden was firm. This spot, he pointed out, was ideal, and the mayor at last laughingly gave in. The sum involved was well worth taking a little trouble to gain. Professor Bolton paused and blinked his dim old eyes. So the matter was arranged, he continued. Mr. Bland, a clerk in Hayden's employ, was sent up here with the money, which he placed in the safe on the very night of our arrival. 
The safe had been left open by Rudder. Bland did not have the combination. He put the package inside, swung shut the door, and awaited the arrival of the mayor. I was present, smiled McGee, at the ceremony you mention. Yes, all these plans, as I have said, were known to Drayton. A few nights ago he came to me. He wanted to send an emissary to Baldpate, a man whom Cargan had never met, one who could perhaps keep up the pretense of being here for some other reason than a connection with the bribe. He asked me to undertake the mission, to see all I could, and if possible to secure the package of money. This last seemed hardly likely. At any rate, I was to gather all the evidence I could. I hesitated. My library fire never looked so alluring as on that night. Also, I was engaged in some very entertaining researches. I beg your pardon, said Billy McGee. Some very entertaining research work. Yes, reflected McGee slowly. I suppose such things do exist. Go on, please. I had loudly proclaimed my championship of civic virtue, however, and there was a chance to serve Rudin. I acquiesced. The day I was to start up here, poor Kendrick came back. He, too, had been a student of mine, a friend of both Raiden and Hayden. Seven years ago, he and Hayden were running the Suburban together under Thornhill's direction. The two young men became mixed up in a rather shady business deal, which was more of Hayden's weaving than Kendrick's. Hayden came to Kendrick's with a story that they were about to be found out, and suggested that one assume the blame and go away. I am telling you all this in confidence as a friend of my friends, the Bentleys, and a young man whom I like and trust despite your momentary madness in the matter of yellow locks. We are all susceptible. Kendrick went. For seven years he stayed away in an impossible tropic town, believing himself sought by the law, for so Hayden wrote him. Not long ago he discovered that the matter in which he and Hayden had offended had never been disclosed after all. He hurried back to the States. You can imagine his bitterness. He had been engaged to Myra Thornhill, and the fact that Hayden was also in love with her may have had something to do with his treachery to his friend. McGee's eyes strayed to where the two victims of the dead man's falsehood whispered together in the shadows, and he wondered at the calmness with which Kendrick had greeted Hayden in the room above. When Kendrick arrived, Professor Bolt went on, first of all he consulted his old friend Drayton. Drayton informed him that he had nothing to fear should his misstep be made public, for in reality there was, at this late day, no crime committed in the eyes of the law. He also told Kendrick how matters stood, and of the net he was spreading for Hayden. He had some fears, he said, about sending a man of my years alone to Baldpate Inn. Kendrick begged for the chance to come, too. So, without making his return known in Rudin, three nights ago he accompanied me here. Three nights. It seems years. I had secured keys for both of us from John Bentley. As we climbed the mountain, I noticed your light, and we agreed it would be best if only one of us revealed ourselves to the intruders in the inn. So Kendrick let himself in by a side door while I engaged you and Bland in the office. He spent the night on the third floor. In the morning I told the whole affair to Quimby, knowing his interest in both Hayden and Kendrick, and secured for Kendrick the key to the annex. Almost as soon as I arrived... Uh, the curtain went up on the melodrama, suggested Mr. McGee. You state it vividly and with truth, Professor Bolton replied. Night before last, the ordinance numbered 45 was due to pass the council. It was arranged that when it did, Hayden, through his man Rudder, or personally, would telephone the combination of the safe to the mayor of Rudin. Cargan and Bland sat in the office watching for the flash of light at the telephone switchboard, 
while you and I were Max's prisoners above. Something went wrong. Hayden heard that the courts would issue an injunction making Ordinance Number 45 worthless. So, although the council obeyed Cargan's instructions and passed the bill, Hayden refused to give the mayor the combination. The old man paused and shook his head wonderingly. Then melodrama began in dead earnest, he continued. I have always been a man of peace, and the wild scuffle that claimed me for one of its leading actors from that moment will remain in my memory as long as I live. Cargan dynamited the safe. Kendrick held him up. You held up Kendrick. I peeked through your window and saw you place the package of money under a brick in your fireplace. You? The curtains were down, interrupted McGee. I found a half inch of open space, explained the old man. Yes, I actually lay on my stomach in the snow and watched you. In the morning, for the first time in my life, I committed robbery. My punishment was swift and sure. Bland swooped down upon me. Again this afternoon, I came upon the precious package after a long search in the hands of the hermit of Balpate. I thought we were safe at last when I handed the package to Kendrick in my room tonight. But I had not counted on the wild things a youth like you will do for the love of a designing maid. Twelve o'clock. The Civic Center of Upper Esquican Falls proclaimed it. Mr. McGee had never been in Rutan. He was sorry he hadn't. He had to construct from imagination alone the great Rutan station through which the girl and the money must now be hurrying. Where? The question would not down. Was she, as the professor believed, designing? No, said Mr. McGee, answering aloud his own question. You are wrong, sir. I do not know just what the motives of Miss Norton were in desiring this money, but I will stake my reputation as an honest hold-up man that they were perfectly all right. Perhaps, replied the other, quite unconvinced. But what honest motive could she have? I am able to assign her no role in this little drama. I have tried. I am able to see no connection between her and the other characters. What? Pardon me, broke in McGee. But would you mind telling me why Miss Thornhill came up to Baldpate to join in the chase for the package? Her motive, replied the professor, does her great credit. For several years, her father, Henry Thornhill, has been forced through illness to leave the management of the railway's affairs to his vice-president, Hayden. Late yesterday, the old man heard of this proposed bribe on his sickbed. He was very nearly insane at the thought of the disgrace it would bring upon him. He tried to rise himself and prevent the passing of the package. His daughter, a brave, loyal girl, herself undertook the task. Then, said Mr. McGee, Miss Thornhill is not distressed at the loss of the most important evidence in the case. I have explained the matter to her, returned Professor Bolton. There is no chance whatever that her father's name will be implicated. Both Drayton and myself have the highest regard for his integrity. The whole affair was arranged when he was too ill to dream of it. His good name will be smirched in no way. The only man involved on the giver's side is dead in the room above. The man we are after now is Cargan. Miss Thornhill has agreed that it is best to prosecute. That eliminates her. Did Miss Thornhill and Kendrick meet for the first time, after his exile upstairs, in number seven? Mr. McGee wanted to know. Yes, answered Professor Bolton. In one of his letters long ago, Hayden told Kendrick he was engaged to the girl. It was the last letter Kendrick received from him. There was a pause. The important thing now, the old man went on, 
is the identity of this girl to whom you have made your princely gift out of the goodness of your young heart. I propose to speak to the woman she has introduced as her mother, and elicit what information I can. He crossed the floor, followed by Mr. McGee, and stood by the woman's chair. She looked up, her eyes heavy with sleep, her appearance more tawdry than ever in the faint light. Madam, remarked the professor, with an air of a judge trying a case, your daughter has to-night made her escape from this place with a large sum of money earnestly desired by the prosecuting attorney of Rudin County. In the name of the law, I command you to tell me her destination and what she proposes to do with that package of greenbacks. The woman blinked stupidly in the dark. She ain't my daughter, she replied, and Mr. McGee's heart leaped up. I can tell you that much. I keep a boarding-house in Rudin, and Miss, the girl you speak about, has been my boarder for three years. She brought me up here sort of as a chaperone, though I don't see as I'm old enough for that yet. You won't get nothing else out of me, except that she is a perfectly lovely young woman and your money couldn't be safer with the President of the United States. The puzzled professor of comparative literature caressed his bald head thoughtfully. I, um, he remarked. Mr. McGee could have embraced this faded woman for her news. He looked at his watch. It was 12.20. The siege is over, he cried. I shall not attempt to direct your actions any longer. Mr. Peters, will you please go down to the village and bring back Mr. Quimby and the coroner? The coroner? The mayor of Rutten leaped to his feet. I don't want to be in on any inquest scene. Come on, Max, let's get out of here. Bland stood up. His face was white and worried. His gay plumage no longer set the tone for his mood. I think I'll go, too he announced, looking hopefully at McGee. I'm no longer your jailer, McGee said. Professor, these gentlemen are your witnesses. Do you wish to detain them? See here, cried the mayor angrily. There ain't no question but that you can find me in Rudin any time you want me. At the little room on Main Street. Anybody can tell you my hours. The door's always open to any reformer that has the nerve to climb the stairs. Look me up there. I'll make it interesting for you. I certainly shall, the professor replied, and very soon. Until then you may go when and where you please. Thanks, sneered the mayor. I'll expect you. I'll be ready. I've had to get ready to answer your kind before. You think you've got me, eh? Well, you're a fool to think that. As for Drayton, the pup, the yellow-streaked pup, I'll talk to Mr. Drayton when I get back to Rudin. Before you go, Bland, remarked McGee, smiling, I want to ask you about Arabella. Where did you get her? Some of it happened to a friend of mine, the ex-haberdasher answered, a friend that keeps a clothing store. I got this suit there. I changed the story here and there. He didn't write her no note, though he thought seriously of it, and he didn't run away and hide. The last I seen of him, he was testing the effect of the heart bomb on sale behind the swinging doors. Mr. McGee laughed, but over the long, lean face of Bland not the ghost of a smile flitted. He was frightened through and through. You're a fine bunch, sneered Mr. Max. Reformers, eh? Well, you'll get what the rest of them always got. We'll tie you up in knots and leave you on the doorstep of some orphan asylum before we're through with you. Come on, Lou, said Cargan. Drayton's a smart guy, Doc. Where's his proof? He loped with a bundle of dry goods this young man's taken a fancy to. And even if he had the money, I've been up against this many a time. You're wasting your talents, Doc. Good night. Come on, boys. The three stamped out through the dining room. 
and from the window Mr. McGee watched them disappear down the road that stretched to Asquean Falls. End of chapter 17. Recording by Todd.